0: CHAPTER Twenty Six, PART 1. OF THE ENGLISH GOVERNESS AT THE SIAMESE COURT. BY ANNA H. LEONOVINS. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE SUPREME KING. HIS CHARACTER AND ADMINISTRATION. PART 1. OF SOMDEH FRA Paramendra MAHAMONKUT, LATE SUPREME KING OF SIAM it may safely be said, for all his capricious provocations of temper and his snappish greed of power, that he was, in the best sense of the epithet, the most remarkable of the oriental princes of the present century, unquestionably the most progressive of all, the supreme rulers of Siam, of whom the native historians enumerate not less than forty, reckoning from the founding of the ancient capital, Ayutthaya or Ayodeva the abode of gods in anno domini thirteen fifty he was the legitimate son of the king fra cho fra puti lutlach commonly known as fenden klang and his mother daughter of the youngest sister of the king somde fra borumach Raja fra puti cho was one of the most admired princesses of her time and is described as equally beautiful and virtuous she devoted herself assiduously to the education of her sons of whom the second the subject of these notes was born in eighteen o four and the youngest her best beloved was the late second king of siam one of the first public acts of the king fra puti was to elevate to the highest honours of the state his eldest son the chofa mongkut and proclaim him heir apparent to the throne he then selected twelve noblemen distinguished for their attainments prudence and virtue most conspicuous among them the venerable but energetic duke somdech ong jai to be tutors and guardians to the lad by these he was carefully taught in all the learning of his time sanskrit and Pali formed his chief study and from the first he aspired to proficiency in latin and english for the pursuit of which he soon found opportunities among the missionaries. His translations from the Sanskrit, Pali and Magadhi, mark him as an authority among Oriental linguists, and his knowledge of English, though never perfect, became at least extensive and varied, so that he could correspond, with credit to himself, with Englishmen of distinction, such as the Earl of Clarendon and Lord Stanley and Russell. In his eighteenth year he married a noble lady, descended from the Pviatak sin, who bore him two sons. Two years later the throne became vacant by the death of his father, but as the reader has already learned, his elder half-brother, who, through the intrigues of his mother, had secured a footing in the favour of the Senabavdi, was inducted by the royal council into power. Unequal to the exploit of unseating the usurper, and fearing his unscrupulous jealousy, the chofa monkut took refuge in a monastery and entered the priesthood, leaving his wife and two sons to mourn him as one dead to them. In this self-imposed celibacy he lived throughout the long reign of his half-brother, which lasted twenty-seven years. In the calm retreat of his Buddhist cloister, the contemplative tastes of the royal scholar found fresh entertainment his intellectual aspirations a new incitement he labored with enthusiasm for the diffusion of religion and enlightenment and above all to promote a higher appreciation of the teachings of buddha to whose doctrines he devoted himself with exemplary zeal throughout his sacerdotal career from the buddhist scriptures he compiled with reverent care and impressive liturgy for his own use His private charities amounted annually to 10,000 Tikals. All the fortune he accumulated from the time of his quitting the court until his return to it to accept the diadem offered by the Senabavdi. He expended either in charitable distributions or in the purchase of books, sacred manuscripts, and relics for his monastery. Footnote. On the third reign he himself served his eldest royal half-brother by superintending the construction and revision of royal sacred books in royal libraries so he was appointed the principal superintendent of clergymen's acts and works of buddhist religion and selector of religious learned wise men in the country during the third reign from the pen of maha end of footnote it was during this retirement that he wrote that notable treatise in defence of the divinity of the revelations of buddha in which he essays to prove that it was the single aim of the great reformer to deliver man from all selfish and carnal passions, and in which he uses these words These are the only obstacles in the search for truth. The most solid wisdom is to know this, and to apply oneself to the conquest of oneself. This it is to become the enlightened, the Buddha. And he concludes with the remark of Asoka, the Indian king that which has been delivered unto us by buddha that alone is well said and worthy of our soul's profoundest homage in the pursuit of his appointed ends mahamonkut was active and pertinacious no labours varied him nor pains deterred him before the arrival of the protestant missionaries in eighteen twenty he had acquired some knowledge of latin and the sciences from the jesuits But when the Protestants came, he manifested a positive preference for their methods of instruction, inviting one or another of them daily to his temple to aid him in the study of English. Finally he placed himself under the permanent tutorship of the Reverend Mr. Caswell, an American missionary, and in order to encourage his preceptor to visit him frequently, he fitted up a convenient resting-place for him on the route to the temple where that excellent man might teach the poorer people who gathered to hear him. Under Mr. Caswell he made extraordinary progress in advanced and liberal ideas of government, commerce, even religion. He never hesitated to express his respect for the fundamental principles of Christianity. But once, when pressed too closely by his Reverend Munshi, with what he regarded as the more pretentious and apocryphal portions of the Bible, he checked that gentleman's advance with the remark that has ever been remembered against him. I hate the Bible mostly. As high priest of Siam, the mystic and potential office, to which he was in the end exalted, he became the head of a new school, professing strictly the pure philosophy inculcated by Buddha, the law of compensation of many births and of final nifan, (footnote: attainment of beatitude). But not nihilism, as the word and the idea are commonly defined, it is only to be idea of God as an ever active creator that the new school of Buddhists is opposed, not to the deity as a primal source from whose thought and pleasure sprang all forms of matter, nor can they be brought to admit the need of miraculous intervention in the order of nature in this connection, It may not be out of place to mention a remark that the king. Still speaking as a high priest having authority, once made to me on the subject of the miracles recorded in the Bible. You say that marriage is a holy institution, and I believe it is esteemed a sacrament by one of the principal branches of your sect. It is, of all the laws of the universe, the most wise and incontestable, pervading all forms of animal and vegetable life. Yet your God, meaning the Christian's God, has stigmatized it as unholy in that he would not permit his son to be born in the ordinary way but must needs perform a miracle in order to give birth to one divinely inspired buddha was divinely inspired but he was only man thus it seems to me he is the greater of the two because out of his own heart he studied humanity which is but another form of divinity and the carnal mind being by this contemplation subdued, he became the divinely enlightened. When his teacher had begun to entertain hopes that he would one day become a Christian, he came out openly against the idea, declaring that he entertained no thought of such a change. He admonished the missionaries not to deceive themselves, saying, "'You must not imagine that any of my party will ever become Christians.' we cannot embrace what we consider a foolish religion in the beginning of the year eighteen fifty one his supreme majesty prabhat somdeh fra nagklo fell ill and gradually declined until the third of april when he expired and the throne was again vacant the dying sovereign forgetting or disregarding his promise to his half-brother the true heir had urged with all his influence that the succession should fall to his eldest son. But in the assembly of the Senabovdi, Somdech Ong Jai, father of the present prime minister of Siam, supported by Somdech Ong Noi, vehemently declared himself in favour of the high priest Chofa Monkut. This struck terror to the illegitimates, and mainly availed to quell the rising storm of partisan conflict. Moreover, Ong Jai had taken the precaution to surround the persons of the princes with a formidable guard, and to distribute an overwhelming force of militia in all quarters of the city, ready for instant action at a signal from him. Thus the two royal brothers, with views more liberal as to religion, education, foreign trade, and intercourse, than the most enlightened of their predecessors had entertained, were firmly seated on the throne as first and second kings and every citizen native or foreign began to look with confidence for the dawn of better times nor did the newly crowned sovereign forget his friends and teachers the american missionaries he sent for them and thanked them cordially for all that they had taught him assuring them that it was his earnest desire to administer his government after the model of the limited monarchy of england and to introduce schools where the Siamese youth might be well taught in the English language and literature and the sciences of Europe. Footnote. In this connection, the Reverend Messrs. Bradley, Caswell, House, Mattoon, and Dean are entitled to special mention. To their united influence, Siam unquestionably owes much, if not all, of her present advancement and prosperity. Nor would I be thought to detract from the high praise that is due to their fellow laborers, in the cause of christianity the roman catholic missionaries who are and ever have been indefatigable in their exertions for the good of the country especially will the name of the excellent bishop Monsignor paligot be held in honour and affection by people of all creeds and tongues in siam as that of a pure and devoted follower of our common redeemer End of footnote. there can be no just doubt that at the time it was his sincere purpose to carry these generous impulses into practical effect for certainly he was in every moral and intellectual respect nobly superior to his predecessor and to his dying hour he was conspicuous for his attachment to a sound philosophy and the purest maxims of buddha yet we find in him a deplorable example of the degrading influence on the human mind of the greed of possessions and power and of the infelicities that attend it for though he promptly set about the reforming of abuses in the several departments of his government and invited the ladies of the american mission to teach in his new harem nevertheless he soon began to indulge his avaricious and sensual propensities and cast a jealous eye upon the influence of the prime minister the son of his stage old friend the duke ong jai to whom he owed almost the crown itself, and of his younger brother the second king, and of the neighbouring princess of ching and Cochin-China. He presently offended those two by their resolute display of loyalty in his hour of peril had seated him safely on the throne of his ancestors. From this time he was continually exposed to disappointment, mortification, slights, from abroad, and conspiracy at home had it not been for the steadfast adherence of the second king and the prime minister the sceptre would have been wrested from his grasp and bestowed upon his more popular brother yet notwithstanding all this he appeared to those who observed him only on the public stage of affairs to rule with wisdom to consult the welfare of his subjects to be concerned for the integrity of justice and the purity of manners and conversation in his own court and careful, by a prudent administration, to confirm his power at home and his prestige abroad. Consider, apart from his domestic relations, he was, in many respects, an able and virtuous ruler. His foreign policy was liberal, he extended toleration to all religious sects, he expended a generous portion of his revenues in public improvements, monasteries, temples, bazaars, canals, bridges, arose at his bidding on every side, and though he fell short on his early promise, he did much to improve the condition of his subjects. For example, at the instance of Her Britannic Majesty's Council, the Honorable Thomas George Knox, he removed the heavy boat tax that had so oppressed the poorer masses of the Siamese, and constructed good roads, and improved the international chambers of judicature. But as husband and kinsman, His character assumes a most revolting aspect. envious, revengeful, subtle, he was as fickle and petulant as he was suspicious and cruel. His brother, even the offspring of his brother, became to him objects of jealousy, if not of hatred. Their friends must, he thought, be his enemies, and applause bestowed upon them was odious to his soul. There were many horrid tragedies in his harem, in which he enacted the part of a barbarian and a despot plainly his conduct as the head of a great family to whom his will was a law of terror reflects abiding disgrace upon his name yet it had this redeeming feature that he tenderly loved those of his children whose mothers had been agreeable to him he never snubbed or slighted them and for the little princess chou fa ying whose mother had been to him a most gentle and devoted wife his affection was very strong and enduring but to turn from the contemplation of his private traits, so contradictory and offensive, to the consideration of his public acts, so liberal and beneficent. Several commercial treaties of the first importance were concluded with foreign powers during his reign. In the first place, the Siamese government voluntarily reduced the measurement duties on foreign shipping from 1900 to 1000 tickles per fathom of ship's beam, this was a brave stride in the direction of a sound commercial policy and an earnest of greater inducements to enterprising traders from abroad in eighteen fifty five a new treaty of commerce was negotiated with his majesty's government by his britannic Majesty's plenipotentiary sir john bowring which proved a very positive advantage to both parties on the twenty ninth of may eighteen fifty six a new treaty substantially like that with great britain was procured by Townsend harris esq representing the united states and later in the same year still another in favour of france through his majesty's envoy m montigny before that time portugal had been the only foreign government having a consul residing at bangkok now the way was open to admit a resident consul of each of the treaty powers and shortly millions of dollars flowed into siam annually by channels through which but a few tens of thousands had been drawn before foreign traders and merchants flocked to bangkok and established rice mills factories for the production of sugar and oil and warehouses for the importation of european fabrics they found a ready market for their wares and an aspect of thrift and comfort began to enliven the once neglected and cheerless land a new and superb palace was erected after the model of windsor castle together with numerous royal residences in different parts of the country the nobility began to emulate the activity and munificence of their sovereign and to compete with each other in the grandeur of their dwellings and the splendour of their cortes. so prosperous did the country become under the benign influence of foreign drain and civilization that other treaties were speedily concluded With almost every nation under the sun, and His Majesty found it necessary to accredit Sir John Bowring as plenipotentiary for Siam abroad. Early in this reign, the appointment of harbour master at Bangkok was conferred upon an English gentleman who proved so efficient in his functions that he was distinguished with the fifth title of a Siamese noble. Next came a French commander and a French bandmaster for the royal troops. Then a custom house was established, and a live Yankee installed at the head of it, who was also glorified with the title of honor. Finally a police force was organized, composed of trusty Malays hired from Singapore, and commanded by one of the most energetic Englishmen to be found in the East. A measure which has done more than all others to promote a comfortable sense of law and order throughout the city and outskirts of Bangkok. It is to be remembered, however, in justice to the British Consul-General in Siam, Mr. Thomas George Knox, that the sure-so silent influence was his, whereby the minds of the King and the Prime Minister were led to appreciate the benefits that must occur from these foreign innovations. The privilege of constructing, on liberal terms, a line of telegraph through Malmain to Singapore, with a branch to Bangkok, has been granted to the Singapore Telegraph Company, and finally a sanitarium has been erected on the coast of Ankin for the benefit of native and foreign residents needing the invigoration of sea air. Footnote His Excellency Cho Fya Bibak Rong's Mahad Kosa Dipute The Frak Lang, Minister for Foreign Affairs, has built a sanitarium at Ankin for the benefit of the public it is for benefit of the siamese europeans or americans to go and occupy when unwell to restore their health all are cordially invited to go there for a suitable length of time and be happy but are requested not to remain month after month and year after year and regard it as a place without an owner to regard it in this way cannot be allowed for it is public property and others should go and stop there also Advertisement. SIAM MONITOR, AUGUST 29, 1868 End of footnote During his retirement in the monastery the king had a stroke of paralysis, from which he perfectly recovered, but it left its mark on his face, in the form of a peculiar falling of the underlip on the right side. In person he was of middle stature, slightly built, of regular features and fair complexion, In early life he lost most of his teeth, but he had had them replaced with a set made of sapon wood, a secret that he kept very sensitively to the day of his death. Capable at times of the noblest impulses, he was equally capable of the basest actions. Extremely accessible to praise, he indiscriminately entertained every form of flattery, but his fickleness was such that no courtier could cajole him long among his favourite women was the beautiful princess tungu supia sister to the unfortunate sultan Mahmud, a rajah of pahang falling fiercely in love with her on her presentation at his court he procured her for his harem against her will and as a hostage for the good faith of her brother but as she being mohammedan ever maintained toward him a deportment of tranquil indifference he soon tired of her and finally dismissed her to a wretched life of obsoleteness and neglect within the palace walls. The only woman who ever managed him with acknowledgement edged success was Kun Chom Piem, hardly pretty but well formed, and of versatile tact, totally uneducated, of barely respectable birth, being Chinese on her father's side, yet was all endowed with a nice intuitive appreciation of character. Once conscious of her growing influence over the king, she contrived to foster and exercise it for years, with but a slight rebuff now and then. Being modest to a fault, even at times obnoxious to the imputation of prudishness, she habitually feigned excuses for non-attendance in His Majesty's chambers, such as delicate health, the nursing of her children, mourning for the death of this or that relative and voluntarily visited him only at rare intervals. In the course of six years she amassed considerable treasure, procured good places at court for members of her family, and was the means of bringing many Chinamen to the notice of the king. At the same time she lived in continual fear, was verily humble and conciliating toward her rival sisters, who pitied rather than envied her, and retained in her pay most of the female executive force in the palace in his daily habits his majesty was remarkably industrious and frugal his devotion to the study of astronomy never abated and he calculated with respectable accuracy the great solar eclipse of august eighteen sixty eight the french government having sent a special commission under command of the baron Hubert le tourneur to observe the eclipse in Siam, the king erected at a place called hua-wan the whale's head a commodious observatory, besides numerous pavilions varying in size and magnificence for His Majesty and Retinue, the French Commission, the Governor of Singapore, Colonel Ord, and Suit, who had been invited to Bangkok by the King, and for Ministers and Nobles of Siam. Provision was made, at the cost of government, for the regal entertainment, in a town of booths and tabernacles, of the vast concourse of natives and Europeans, who followed His Majesty, from the capital to witness the sublime phenomenon and a herd of fifty noble elephants were brought from the ancient city of Ayugia for service and display the prospect becoming dubious and gloomy just at the time of first contact ten o'clock the prime minister archly invited the foreigners who believed in an overruling providence to pray to him that he may be pleased to disperse the clouds long enough to afford us a good view of the grandest of eclipses. Presently the clouds were partially withdrawn from the sun, and His Majesty, observing that one twentieth of the disk was obscured, announced the fact to his own people by firing a cannon, and immediately pipes screamed and trumpets blared in the royal pavilion, a tribute of reverence to the traditional fable about the angel Rahu swallowing the sun both the king and prime minister scorning the restraints of dignity were fairly boisterous in their demonstrations of triumph and delight the latter skipping from point to point to squint through his long telescope at the instant of absolute totality when the very last ray of the sun had become extinct his excellency shouted hurrah 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 and scientifically disgraced himself leaving his spy-glass swinging He ran through the gateway of his pavilion, and cried to his prostrate wives, Henceforth will you not believe the foreigner. But that other excellency, Phya, Bhudra Bahai, minister for northern Siam, more orthodox, sat in dumbfounded faith, and gaped at the awful deoglution of the angel Rahu. The government expended not less than a hundred thousand dollars on this scientific expedition and the delegation from the foreign community of Bangkok approached his majesty with an address of thanks for his indiscriminate hospitality. But the extraordinary excitement and exposure to the noxious atmosphere of the jungle proved inimical to the constitution of the king. On his return to Bangkok he complained of general weariness and prostration, which was the prelude to fever. Foreign physicians were consulted but at no stage of the case was any European treatment employed. He rapidly grew worse, and was soon past saving. On the day before his death, he called to his bedside his nearest relatives, and parted among them such of his personal effects as were most prized by him, saying, I have no more need of these things, I must give up my life also. Buddhist priests were constant in attendance, and he seemed to derive much comfort from their prayers and exhortations in the evening he wrote with his own hand a tender farewell to the mothers of his many children eighty-one in number on the morning of his last day october the first eighteen sixty-eight he dictated in the pali language a farewell address to the buddhist priesthood the spirit of which was admirable and clearly manifested the face of the dying man in the doctrines of the reformer for he hesitated not to say farewell ye faithful followers of buddha to whom death is nothing, even as all earthly existence is vain, all things mutable, and death inevitable. Presently I shall myself submit to that stern necessity. Farewell, for I go only a little before you. Feeling sure that he must die before midnight, he summoned his half brother, His Royal Highness Krom Hluang Wong Si, His Excellency the Prime Minister Chow Phya Kralahome, and others and solemnly imposed upon them the care of his eldest son, the Chofa Chulalon Korn, and of his kingdom, at the same time expressing his last earthly wish that the thee, in electing his successor, would give their voices for one who should conciliate all parties, that the country might not be distracted by dissensions on that question. He then told them he was about to finish his course and implored them not to give way to grief nor to any sudden surprise, that he should leave them thus. That must befall all creatures that come into this world, and may not be avoided. Then turning his gaze upon a small image of his adored teacher, he seemed for some time absorbed in awful contemplation. Such is life. Those were actually the last words of this most remarkable Buddhist king. He died like a philosopher, calmly and sententiously, solely on death and its inevitability. At the final moment, no one being near save his adopted son, Friabu Rut, he raised his hands before his face, as in his accustomed posture of devotion. Then suddenly his head drooped backward, and he was gone. End of chapter 26, part 1